you know, we don't sit around the table and talk about death and dying often, right? Or tragedy and serious illness. But there should be moments when we do think about these things because as you and I both know, life can turn on a dime. Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious situations and illness as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Strachan. How can we talk with patients and their families about a future that includes living with advancing illness, dying, and death? In today's conversation with Sandra Andrichuk, we talk about advanced care planning, the talk with seriously ill patients and families about the future, and how the widely lauded Serious Illness Conversation Program can help nurses listen and respond. Sandra's nursing career has largely focused on supporting patients, families, and community with end-of-life care planning, educating and supporting healthcare professionals on caring with compassion for the dying patient, and navigating the moral, ethical, and legal landscape that people may encounter within the health system. Sandra holds a master's degree in science nursing and a master's degree in health science at bioethics. She worked for 16 years as a pediatric nurse practitioner and over 10 years as a healthcare ethicist. She's a master trainer in the Serious Illness Conversation program, which originated from Ariadne Labs in Boston, Massachusetts. Currently, she is the project manager for the Serious Illness Care Program at Hamilton Health Sciences, leading the implementation of serious illness conversations across the organization. Sandra provides community education on advanced care planning, and in 2020, founded Quality Life Planning, a healthcare consultation service aimed primarily at supporting clients to develop advanced healthcare directives to accompany the power of attorney for personal care offered in Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Sandra. You bring such a rich and unique background to the important work that nurses do. And I'm so grateful that you've agreed to join me and talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. So to begin with, as you look back in your career, I'm wondering if there are conversations that stand out to you or situations that stand out to you as some of the really hard conversations Mm -hmm that you've had with patients and or families? Oh, there's just so many, Pat. Like I, when I think about the challenges that we face in healthcare, I think one of the biggest challenges is communication. So, you know, in just reflecting on that, um, I, I remember I had a situation where um, when I was working in the newborn intensive care unit, And making decisions for pediatrics is very difficult because they don't really have a voice of their own, right? We depend on the families and we depend on the parents, the health professionals to make decisions for this, you know, very vulnerable, um, tiny little, little human being. And I remember that uh, many people were coming in to make um, recommendations on what they think should happen. And the baby had a lot of different issues going on, you know, with the brain, the heart, the lungs, the, the kidneys, the, um, the bowels. And every specialist came in and said, I can fix this. I can fix this. I can fix this. And, and nobody was really taking a step back and saying, what's the overall picture here? Like, yes, we can do all of these things. And, you know, and everyone's giving their own opinion within their own encapsulated specialty instead of looking at the whole picture. And I think, it's, it was a great example of how we were not taking a holistic approach to care. And when we stop and pause and say, who is this person? 
as a whole, I think we we have a different lens that we look through because we're not just looking at it through a disease lens. We're looking at it through a humanistic approach. And as that person, as an entity um, and, and a complete whole versus bits and parts. So I think that, you know, I, I remember kind of putting my hand up and saying, it feels very odd to me. And it was hard for me to articulate at the time what I was feeling. But I think in hindsight, you know, I can I can express it now because I think stepping away from it and learning more about communication and our holistic approach to care and, you know, multidisciplinary approach to care, I think that conversation that happened 20 years ago would probably look a lot different today. Thanks for sharing that and also being humble about your learning in that. Mm -hmm. You know, how did you learn to have those conversations or to raise your voice as advocate? Yeah, um, courage right? Humility, you know, being able to be vulnerable and put yourself out there and, and be heard, right? Because I think, you know, I think it does take a lot of courage for to put your hand up and say, I don't understand or help me understand. Um, and by that we learn, right? And, and I think, you know, if one person's wondering, there's definitely somebody else in the room that's also wondering. And so for you to be the courageous person to put your hand up and say, I need more information, I had also great preceptors. Like when I was working in the neonatal unit, you know, I, I know you remember back in those days when the nurse practitioner program was just in its initial inception um, and McMaster University was really leading the way in this. And so I had some amazing professors, um, Janet Pinelli, Amanda Symington, like they, they were just, they knew how to really communicate well and how to teach others to do that. So I do credit a lot of the my role models in, in my ability to learn um, to be a good communicator, for sure. You know, that's uh, a good reminder to us to think about the people that are shaping our own practices and, and also how we as educators can be more intentional about helping people learn those skills versus mm -hmm. having the good fortune of having a mentor. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so you've obviously taken this uh, far beyond where you were 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you've eventually focused on advanced care planning. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what that is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So advanced care planning is really a, a concept in healthcare that looks at reflection of who we are as people and what we would want for ourselves. Should we find ourselves in a situation where others have to make decisions for us? And it, it really should be done when somebody is well and healthy and, you know, young adults should be thinking about these things and sharing them with the people around them. Um, and we often make a lot of assumptions about what others would want for themselves instead of asking. And, and oftentimes we don't ask because there's, there's not an opportunity. Like we don't, you know, we don't sit around the table and talk about death and dying often, right? Um, or tragedy and serious illness. But there should be moments when we do think about these things because as you and I both know, life can turn on a dime. We, it's very important that people understand what we value and what we wish for. That's the concept of advanced care planning. It's about doing this when we're well, when we're healthy, when it, the, the conversation doesn't feel so uncomfortable because we're not staring something serious in the eye. 
whether it be death or or a, a bad prognosis or diagnosis that we you know find ourselves in the middle of of having to deal with. And so so that's sort of the idea of advanced care planning. And we know that the Ministry of Health is very um, big on this because they want people to have these discussions. Um, our our different colleges, the physician, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the College of Nurses, the College of Social Work, it's all part of that standard of practice that we engage in these early discussions and we encourage community members to do the same. Um, so that's that's sort of the idea of advanced care planning, thinking about what our health preferences would be in those what if situations that might arise in life. So you raise such an important point, and that is that people are almost afraid of doing that. It's sort of like doing your will. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so many people avoid <laughs> doing that as if it would bring on Yes. Death. And and sometimes to me, advanced care planning feels like that. I guess that, you know, I always um, will say to people, you don't buy house insurance thinking your house is going to burn down. You know, I mean, and we don't buy car insurance thinking, you know, oh, you know, if I buy car insurance tomorrow, I'm going to get in an accident. We just don't do that, right? It's actually mandated that we buy, you know, we insure our property if we have a mortgage, we insure our car if we're going to drive. But nobody's mandating that we have some insurance around what might happen to us should we we get sick. And so it's this idea that, you know, is it really taboo or is it, you know, it's like going on a vacation. You wouldn't plan a vacation and just hope for the best. You do lots of planning around that. We plan for everything. We plan for weddings. We plan for um, our funerals. We plan for our education. We plan for our vacation. But yet we get scared when we think about planning for um, our life as it evolves. And in the event that we do face something as, um, such as a, as an illness. Yeah, so it just seems silly that we wouldn't be thinking about these things and doing a little bit of planning around that as well. So that's a message for all of us, I guess. We all should be doing this and not, not just doing it in our practice. When you say about planning for a funeral and planning for other things in your life, I've often thought that that gray area in between we just, mm -hmm. we don't talk about. Yeah. So people will have very definite ideas about mm -hmm. their funeral, but their life prior to that sometimes gets avoided in terms of what they value and wish, yeah. et cetera. So we can be advocates for ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. So what is the difference between advanced care planning and an advanced directive? Mm -hmm. And we should note that in different countries and in different regions of our country or other countries, this language may be different, advanced mm -hmm. directives. Yeah. Can we just talk about that for a minute? Yeah. And so in a nutshell, it's like a roadmap. So if we think of it that way versus, because I know it, that we do get caught up on the language, right? And there's been a lot of um, pushback from people about an advanced directive because they feel that it becomes legally binding. Um, and I can speak in the, in the province of Ontario, advanced directives are not legally binding. Advanced directives are really a tool that the substitute decision maker can use in order to make decisions for the person they have to make a decision for that's incapable. And so they're never really put into play until um, somebody becomes incapable and the decision maker is like, okay, now what do I do? I don't know how to make this decision. Oh, I have this tool. I have this roadmap. I have this advanced directive. I'm going to read through it. And that directive should represent the voice of the person. That, that person should speak to you while you're reading their document so that you can get a sense of what 
quality of life means to them, what things they're willing to live with, what things they would see as falling below the level of quality of life that they would find acceptable, and maybe give you a bit of direction about certain specific things that they want for themselves. And so when I help clients create an advanced directive, we go through the advanced care planning process first to get to the development of a directive. So I would never just jump in and do a directive for somebody without knowing them, without having a discussion and asking them several questions. And I know that in some situations, um, you may go to your lawyer and they have a standard template and you tick off boxes and you sign it and you hand it back to them. The validity of that when somebody is reading it and it looks like a carbon copy or it looks like it could be anybody's voice, it's less important to the person making decisions or it's less valid to those around us because they're like, yeah, this is just a standard template that everybody uses. But if you do a good directive, it will, you can hear the person's voice when you're reading that directive. It's personalized to them and it gives the, the decision maker, the substitute decision maker, the ability to feel comfortable in the decisions that they're making for that person. Right. So it would be true that having a conversation with someone may not necessarily result in the writing of an advanced directive, but at least having that conversation around what's important and what they value yep. is what you're is what's really at yep. the essence of this. Absolutely. And you know, people can like people get creative too. They can do videos and they can, you know, do a, a voice recording. Um, they can have, you know, their friends over for a dinner and play, play. Um, you know, there's there's different games that you can buy that actually inspire these questions. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how you do it. What you want to make sure is that you're following this process of engaging in discussions, reflecting on the options that we have in our within our health system, thinking about, you know, as we age, um, aging at in place, meaning like the living at home for as long as possible. Like talk to your family about that, you know, about renovating your home, about, you know, doing an environmental scan to say what in my home, if I aged or if I ever ended up needing a walker or a wheelchair, would I be able to live here? That's all about advanced care planning, you know, thinking about those things. Um, and I mean, there's so much that goes in, that can go into an advanced directive, which is part of the planning, right? You can think about your funeral. You can think about who you want to share personal health information with. You can think about what your death would look like, the environment you want to be in, the music you want to have played. Um, you can think about what things your health professionals would need to know, like, you know, I wear glasses to see the TV or I have my second language is Italian or my first language is Italian. I might revert to that. Um, so these are things that you want to be thinking about and thinking, how would that play out if I ended up in the health system or if I ended up needing somebody to support me and then start talking about it. And then, I mean, the the steps, the, the you know, five key steps of advanced care planning. The last one is to document. But I, I always say to clients, like, if you are not ready to document something, that's okay too. Because this is, this going through this process is just as valuable as creating something in the end. It, you know, it, it is... Um, it is something uh, that that people will often want to create because they've done all that work. But the other thing I'll mention in, in our health law, so our law is followed by the, we're governed by the um, the Healthcare Consent Act, the Ontario Healthcare Consent Act. And decision-making for an incapable patient, the way that it reads is that it's the last express wish, verbal or written, that is applicable to the situation 
that is made well capable. So it doesn't have to be written. It could be verbal. And it could be something that happens right before you go into surgery and you share something with somebody, right? And they can take that and use it to make decisions for you. So another uh, point is that people can change their minds. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as as, uh, conditions may change, life experience changes people. And then, of course, when people do come into the health system, we never can predict the conditions under which they will require care. So these are just guideposts. Yep. And um and of course subject to legislation in whatever area people happen yeah. to live. Yeah. yeah. We've talked about advanced care planning, we've talked about advanced directives. How are those different from what we would understand as a goal of care discussion? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Goals of care discussions are often about the options of care that somebody has and to create a plan around the illness. So you're when you're creating goals of care within the health system, it's usually because you're facing an illness and you need to figure out, you know, how are we going to approach this? What are our options? And this is when we often will see clinicians engage in describing what options are available, what alternatives are are um, available, the the pros and cons, um, and then going through what we would consider an informed consent process and then coming up with a plan of care. And so that plan of care kind of equates to your goals of care. And so we often see that clinicians will then be very structured in what the goal of care would be. And let's just say, for example, somebody who's fighting cancer, their goal might be cure. So the overall goal is to cure. And so then the plan becomes provide this like A, B, C, D, E um, intervention to reach that ultimate goal of care. And so that's what I I kind of, you know, that's how it sort of fits into these discussions or these different various types of conversations. And the advanced care planning can inform the goals of care because you've already thought about these things in advance, not within the context of the illness that you're facing per se, but in regards to you know, how you like to live life, the things that um, most worry you. So so that that then starts to inform your goals of care and, and how that would unfold. Okay. So advanced care planning is thinking about the future and possibilities and goals of care discussions are actually about a plan for an issue that is happening now. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to um, thread this conversation with another highlight in your own work, and that is the Serious Illness Mm -hmm. Conversation Guide. I'm wondering if you can just talk about what that actually is. Absolutely. So when we think about serious illness and discussions that we have with patients and families, This looks different than goals of care because a lot of people will confuse the two. Well, I had a goals of care conversation, so I don't really need to have a serious illness conversation. So I'm going to go back to my the beginning where I said this holistic approach to care because a person is not just their disease, right? A person is so much more than their disease. That It's like the iceberg, right? What we see when we deal with patients and families is just the tip of the iceberg because we are doing, we are seeing them within the context of the health system dealing with their health issue. And so what we need to do is we need to take a step back and say, tell me more about who you are as a person. What are you most worried about? 
What is your greatest fear? Who are the people that are supporting you through all of this? How much do they know about your illness? How can we continue to improve your quality of living? Yes, we're doing the treatment for, you know, that overall goal, cure, whatever it might be. But what other things are going to help you live life to the fullest? That's what a serious illness conversation is about. They don't happen very often in the health system, in, independent of it, in and of itself. It, it might come up with other things. So when you're doing your initial assessment of a patient and you're understanding what their goals of care are, you might throw in some of these other questions that are about that holistic approach. But a serious illness conversation is about carving out time for that and making it very intentional. And not just throwing it into your day-to-day conversation, but to make it very intentional so that that person knows, I care about you, I'm in this with you, and I want to ensure that I have a really good understanding of who you are as a person. And I'll just give you an example. An example is, um, I'm going to use a woman with breast cancer. Okay, so a woman with breast cancer, her goal of care is cure. You know, uh, she's, let's say, 40 years old, she's got three little kids. And the team knows that we're we're doing everything we can to, you know, radiation, chemotherapy, surgical intervention. We're going to try and make sure that this cancer goes away and never comes back. You sit down with that woman and you ask her, what are you most worried about? And she says, my children, I can deal with chemo. I can deal with radiation. I'm strong. I'm young. I came in this healthy. But when I look at my three little kids, that's where I have a hard time waking up in the morning and knowing and not knowing how to tell them why mommy's not here for some of the time, feeling like I've left them and they were too young to understand. So now we might have a different intervention that we're going to help with, with. Okay. So now we may say, we want to get child life specialists involved. We want to invite your kids to do a tour of the hospital, see where mommy is. We want to work with the team to maybe one of your, your little kids can stay overnight with you. And the nursing staff can help support that. So now this really stressful, horrible situation this mom's going through is now placated a little bit by us understanding more of what is most concerning to her because we actually asked the question, what are you most fearful of? Okay, great example. If we can just go back a little bit, we're talking about a certain conversation that has been coined serious illness conversation. And when many of us hear that now, as people, as this has become more widely known, we know what we're talking about. But in fact, someone could hear that term serious illness conversation and not understand that we're talking about a certain guide that was created. So can you just describe Uh where it came from just briefly? And and then we can also uh, point people, if they wish, if they're not familiar with it, to a resource online. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So I'm going to say two names, Susan Block and Ariad and um, um, Etoile Gwandi. Okay, so they were the ones that really started this initiative um, in um, what what is coined Ariadne Labs. And Ariadne Labs is a kind of a test lab for really innovative things that happen in healthcare. They're very uh, like world renowned for the innovation that they do. 
a 12 Gwandi being mortal, if you haven't read it, it's mostly, it's often on people's, you know, um, best read book list. Um, and so he just went out and said, like, he asked a number of different clinicians, how do I talk to patients? He was a surgeon. How do I talk to patients when I see them coming into the OR and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like, why are we going through surgery for this patient when the outcome is so grim? Has anyone stopped to talk to them? And so gathering all of this information and working with Susan Block, who's a palliative care physician, they came up with this idea of a checklist, which we often use checklists in health in our health system, right? Like you think about the OR checklist, right? Like we go through everything so we make sure we're doing the right thing. So basically they came up with a checklist, which is has become the guide. And this checklist is really got leading or guiding your conversation so that you don't miss really important information when you're talking with your patients. So um, and I'll just kind of go through the highlights of the guide. So it really is about setting the stage, understanding what the how the patient would like information shared with them, getting an understanding of how their what their understanding of their prognosis is, and then really exploring some key factors for them, such as what are you most fearful of, what worries you the most, where are your sources of strength, how much does your family know about your illness. What uh, are abilities that are so crucial to you that you can't imagine ever living without? And then being able to, with that exploration of those things that are not necessarily about their disease, but maybe more about how they're living life, um, to make some recommendations. And so that my example of, you know, getting child life specialists involved, that's, you know, that would be sort of a recommendation that would come out after this detailed exploration around what's most important to them. And then, you know, ensuring that the patient at the end knows that you're there to support them through this. And then, of course, the final step, documenting to make sure that all of this great information is transferred to somebody else who might be caring for that person. Yeah, so that that's sort of how the guide came about. And, you know, when we talk about a serious illness conversation, it's part of the serious illness care program. And that's the serious illness conversation guide that is the um, crux or the the um, the centerpiece of the program. So I know that research has shown that the guide is best implemented and taken up with effective results when it is embedded in a system. So that's where the program is. Yeah. However, clinicians and and in this case, we're going to focus on nurses mm-hmm. can <laughs> use the guide and parts of it in their practice without system wide implementation. Is that correct? I would absolutely agree with that, Pat. Okay. And so for those who are not familiar with it, you can Google Ariadne Labs and uh, Serious Illness Conversation Guide or just Serious Illness Conversation Guide, and it will actually pop up in the search. Yeah. Uh, I have actually colleagues in Denmark that told me they were using it, that they had found it on yeah. the internet. And that's without the actual program that taught it. So so if we can focus a little bit on how nurses mm-hmm. have received this and how useful it is to nurses. Yeah, for sure. So um, it's interesting because uh, last week I was training nurses in the cancer center. One of the nurses said to me, I feel so lucky to be on the cusp of something so important in our health system. And it was like, yeah, that you're right. It's, it's, this is a pivotal point in how we deliver care. 
because more people are standing up saying, I want to share with you what I want for myself. And I want somebody to ask me that. And nurses are in a great position to utilize this as part of their toolbox, right? So this is when you talk about maybe it's not part of the system that they're in, but it can be part of their toolbox. And I always say to people that doing the sick training is not about a communication course because we already have that embedded into our training programs, right? Like, you know, when we talk about body language, when we talk about asking open-ended questions, you know, when we, we, you know, these are strategies we learn through nursing school on how to communicate. This is different because it's giving you a tool to use a systematic approach to walk through a conversation that in the end is going to help you understand your patient a bit more than what you did when you walked into that room. For that alone, nurses can use it to understand their patients a little bit more and to also be the bridge of communication between the patient and let's say their other health professionals, whether that be their physician, their physiotherapist, their nutritionist, because if they're also gathering information, documenting it, then they can share that with the other the the other healthcare members that are part of the circle of care. You know, we all have this this role to play in making sure we hear the patient's voice. And because nurses can do this even when they're doing care, right? And you're holding a conversation with somebody, um, you know, you 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 can ask these questions that will give you more of a sense of that person and and what they want for themselves. So definitely it can be part of their toolbox. Um, and it can be part of their communication with other health professionals as well. I think you've hit on something really important, and that is that nurses have these conversations usually or very often when they are engaged in some other procedure mm-hmm. or, or care action. And, and so that time is not carved out specifically necessarily for uh-huh. this. Uh-huh. And and that is really a part of nurses' work that's not well appreciated uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. or understood perhaps. So one of the things that people often say when we talk about having conversations that often have a, an emotional connotation or are serious is, I don't have time for that. Uh-huh. How would you respond to mm-hmm. that? I guess I know there's so many ways I can respond, <laughs> but I guess I, 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 ha- I have to admit appreciation for that because I know it can be very, very busy, but these conversations don't have to take hours and hours, right? I mean, on average, they take about 20 minutes. And in my role as an ethicist, when I was able to sort of look in on a situation, I would always think, I wish somebody would have asked them a year ago, what they wanted, because now their family's trying to figure this out and everyone's arguing about what they think the person would want for themselves. And if somebody would have just taken 20 minutes to have this type of conversation with them, it would have saved a lot of hardship in in future. It's kind of like this idea of like, solve the problem upstream, right? You know, work upstream versus trying to, you know, undo the damage or 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 the, the flood that's happened in the end. And it, it will save you a lot more work um, in the end. So uh, I think that it's worth it to carve out the time and to make this part of your workflow. And that's part of the program is to embed it into your daily workflow. And that's why sometimes it is better to actually designate a specific time for this even though we can use these as a, as part of our toolbox um, and as part of our 
ongoing conversation. But if a patient actually knows that they're coming into this discussion with these questions that might be asked of them, they're going to prepare for it. And that's part of the program too, right? Is the the patient letter that you give to them ahead of time. We say letter because it was developed for the outpatient, but we it's now been brought into the inpatient. So it's the preparation work that you do with the patient and their family or SDM so that when they do engage in this conversation, they come prepared. And by that, I mean, they've thought about some of the things that are most important. They may have had a power of attorney that they've created that the the team wants them to bring in. They may have done advanced care planning with their family doctor and and we want them to bring that in so that we can um, use that as part of the conversation. So I think that it's worth carving that time out um, to to make that happen. But again, nurses can do this also during their daily activities with the patient. And they don't necessarily, if they're working in a system that has not endorsed it, can use bits and pieces of it to really strengthen. So one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, people really like having language to be able to say things. Yeah. Can you give an example of some of the language that is offered through this Uh uh, guide that nurses find really helpful? I think yeah. you've given a couple. But yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I one of the things that I hand out to to nurses when I'm teaching um, this program is the um, variety of ways to discuss prognosis. So, as we all know, that there, well, maybe we all don't know this, but you and I both know this is that people feel very uncomfortable with time based prognosis. They feel like that's reserved for physicians to do that. So I encourage um, nurses to think about functional prognosis and also um, prognosis about uncertainty. So a functional, you know, uh, something such as I wish things were different, but I think this might be as strong as you may feel. And I'd really like to be able to understand where things are at for you. And I'm wondering if we can have a discussion about it. Um, you know, the other way in which you can pose it about uncertainty is, you know, the future is often very uncertain and we always wish we have a crystal ball to know what might lie ahead. Um, but unfortunately we don't. And I am worried that this is the strongest that you might feel. And could we discuss this further? Another way in which to engage is like to start the conversation is, you know, sometimes we have different tools, right? That we measure people's performance. So such as the palliative care performance, the frailty scale, you may say, you know, I've noticed from the last time I saw you when I was on shift that you seem to be doing a lot more. And I've come in this shift, this, you know, stretch of let's say four shifts I'm doing. And it really looks like um, things have changed for you. And I'm wondering, you know, how how this has landed for you and and maybe we can discuss it a little bit further. And that kind of leads into the discussion. So you don't need to say, you know, something like, you know, you have days, weeks or months to live and we need to get things in order and start creating, you know, our plan B um, because I'm worried our plan A isn't working. Um, You know, there's other ways to to engage and, and initiate this discussion based on your concern for what you're observing. And that's so much in the nurse's uh-huh. uh, role. Really? Uh, I, I can say from my own experience that that functional decline uh-huh. and how you framed it has been so helpful for people, uh, for families too. Yeah. To say just as simple, this may be as strong as they feel. Yeah. 
And uh, I know that for families that I've worked with, I've had people come back and say, that was so helpful to me Yeah, uh, in thinking about the future and what we could be doing. And so yeah. if you're wrong, that's great. Uh, things things can look better. And it also introduced, it was a, a way that I could hear that I might need to sit, think about some other things. And they've also told me yeah. that they've passed it on to other people and yeah. said that. Yeah. So it's yeah. a gentle way to invite other thinking. Yeah. The other uh, one, yeah, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the other one that I share with nurses well, when I'm teaching them that I've I, they've often said, oh, that, fe- that feels really good, um, is the statement if your health was to worsen, what would be your most important goals? And so you're still giving them hope, right? You're not taking away that hope and going, you know, when you get sick, you know, when you get worse, right? It's like, if your health was to worsen, what would be the most important goals that you have? How would that change things for you if you were experiencing a decline? And so you're, you're not, you know, you're still allowing for that window of hope but also instilling some reality and opportunity to think about the future and what things might look like. I guess the one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is like, who do we use this for? And I don't know if you're going to ask that question, but so I'll just pause, but I think that's an important point too, right? Like who would we actually, who who would we feel that would benefit the most from these conversations? One of the big portions of this program is about developing triggers. So we all are very familiar with the surprise question. I, you know, I say surprise question, and I would say 99% of health professionals know the surprise question is, would you be surprised if this person died in the next year? And if not, they would benefit from palliative services, right? And so, so can I interrupt you yeah. there? Because I'm not so sure that everybody does know that. <laughs> okay. Um, so we might be surprised by that. Uh, yeah. it, it is true that in the worlds that that we function in uh, yeah. currently that has come to be accepted. Yeah. Um, and at first it was such a rare thing because it is totally based on your expert opinion yeah. and not a calculated time-based yeah. prognosis. So yes. it's really from you recognize patterns of illness in your experience where you kind of see, I think I know where this is going or it might be yeah. going. Yeah. And so yeah. that has become valued hasn't it as a as a way a non-scientific way if yes some might say to say mm, maybe maybe we should have this conversation yeah so that's one way that we can do that and that's why I often talk about that is your gut reaction right what's your gut telling you and as you've said um Pat when when we see often patterns in the patients that we care for. We sort of make some assumption, right? And that's often what it is, is it's an assumption and based on, on knowledge, a skill and expertise. But there's also an opportunity to look at um, in your own area of work, what tools would you use that are more objective? So it's not just subjective. And so that everyone can be sort of on the same page. And I think about, you know, because I'm working with the cancer center right now, I think about the cancer center and the palliative performance scale. You know, if you hit hit a scale of 50 or less, this would trigger a sick conversation, sick, we call it sick, serious illness conversation. Um, Or if you have a certain diagnosis that we know the cure rate is very low, that would trigger a conversation. If you're going into third line palliative chemotherapy, that would trigger a conversation. Some people use the frailty scale. I know when I worked with medicine, they were using the frailty scale 
So you hit five and above, that would come, that would trigger multiple hospital admissions within a year with comorbidities would hit a conversation. We have now the um, what we call the Homer scale. Uh, we're not using it in my organization, but in other organizations, they use the Homer scale, which is a very objective way of gathering data from that patient and then making a decision about whether or not that person would trigger um, a sick conversation. So what the trigger is to be objective so that you can identify patients um, so that you're not just casting the net wide and having this conversation with everyone. You're actually identifying key patients based on their diagnosis, prognosis, their comorbidities, and making a decision about um, having carving out time to have this discussion. Very useful ideas and tools that yeah. that that we could be using. Um, we could be introducing into an organization or or just taking up ourselves. So the other thing is, I think nurses are often worried about, is this in my scope of practice? Yeah. Or if somebody says, no, you don't, you know, we ask for permission or you don't have permission. Yeah. Can you comment yeah. about that? Yeah. I think, I think that is, um, I want to say uh, an old way of thinking, right? A, 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 a mindset that lacks the understanding of this tool because the tool isn't about sharing prognosis. And I know, um, you know, our, our physician colleagues, um, often feel like that's their part of their domain, which is completely true, right? It's not the domain of, of our of the nursing practice, our scope of practice to um, share diagnosis and prognosis. We might reiterate it um, because it's been documented, it's been charted, and the patient's been told, and so we may we may reinforce or reiterate that. But so so people then get hung up on well, you know, because it says sharing prognosis as part of the the um, guide. I can't, this isn't part of my scope. But again, we talked about the different ways in which we identify prognosis. So it's not just time-based. It's not yeah. just specific to disease. It's about function. It's about uncertainty in life. Like our, our aging population, so much uncertainty there, right? And you're seeing UTIs and hospital admissions, you know, decline more and more comorbidities. This is like, that's perfect person to be having these discussions with, right? So it doesn't have to be about a specific prognosis. So I think when we when we wrap our head around that, then we can see where it falls into the nurse's scope of practice. And, you know, again, I'm going to go back to, you know, my, my colleagues in the cancer center and the nurses there. Part of the um, a cancer care nurse's scope of practice is end-of-life conversations. It's right in the scope of practice. So this is a great tool to help enhance their um, performance around communicating with their patients and families. So it definitely um, is part of scope of practice. Um, and again, it's different than a goals of care conversation, right? Where you're talking about the options of treating the disease. We're talking about a holistic approach to care. So it is definitely part of the nursing scope of practice. Thank you for that. I think that some nurses are afraid they might harm the patient by having these conversations or saying something wrong. And so that's very helpful to think this is actually about learning. It's mm -hmm. a learning conversation around the patient and often normalizes the conversation about these things. It's like if the nurse introduces this or picks up on cues to have this talk, 
it actually feels better mm-hmm. to, to patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, it normalizes. If we can go back to prognosis for a minute, I, I also just wanted to pick up on that because I think nurses offer prognostic statements all the time. Mm-hmm. You're doing very well. This is how you may feel in a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's likely many patients like you or who have such a diagnosis mm-hmm. often feel this way. It's a way to introduce future planning. So really, it's just an extension of that. Yep. And then and then delving a little bit more in the exploration, right? Right, right. So I've shared this with you. Now I want to know how you feel. I want to know what your thoughts are, um, where you want to go from here, right? So it's about sharing that prognosis and then doing further exploration. It's sort of a way to introduce the conversation. Another term that you used or phrase that you used that I've heard as very helpful is that wish worry, wonder. Can can you briefly talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so wish, worry, wonder is very helpful. You know, I wish things were different for you. I worry that things might get worse and I'm wondering what this means to you. So you're, you're not taking away hope. You're instilling a sense of, in some ways, comfort by saying you're, you're, wondering what that person wants so you're you're sharing with them that what they tell you is important to you and you're also being honest by saying i'm worried about you like who doesn't want to be somebody to be worried about them right like you know you feel taken care of right so you've got hope you've got care and you've got um commitment to be there for them um in that brief statement and so it does it does really i think help people to to phrase it properly uh, I think we could take that into different parts of our practice. So think about how you could incorporate that. And and that wish, saying I wish is standing in hope, Yeah. right? Which is something that we never want to take away in That's whatever right. form That's right. that, that might be in. Yeah, yeah. It does seem to be the health professional's biggest concern, right, is taking away hope. But what what I can say about that is that people's hope changes as they experience different things, right? And as time goes on, especially when somebody is facing an illness. And again, we're talking people that likely will not survive their disease, right? So their their hope is going to change over time and what they're hoping for. Um, And we should never assume that these conversations would be worse for somebody. In fact, by offering this, we are offering them an opportunity to pause and think about what's most important and what things they want to do and how they want to live life, which if nobody brings this up, that might, that person may walk away and continue to maybe do things that they, w- they wouldn't have necessarily done had somebody not been open and honest with them about where things are at for them. Yes. Thank you so much for this. I'm wondering as we uh, look to close this conversation, something we could probably talk about for a long time, mm-hmm. but what is it that you've mentioned some feedback that you've had from nurses? Is there anything that stands out to you that in addition, nurses find very helpful or very challenging or what they need in order to be able to feel confident in having these conversations with patients and families? You know, I think the program itself, being able to do the role playing, I mean, that's part of the program, right, is, you know, to practice the tool and even to be able to practice it with your colleague, right, and get get feedback from them, Um, but also to play that role as a patient, right? So how did that land on me? I'm playing this role as this patient who has cancer that's, you know, been told really um, bad news. And now I'm sitting there across from my nurse and geez, 
I like, this is what I'd really want them to say to me. Well, now you're like, oh, then I should say that to my patients because if that's how I'm feeling. So to be able to actually, you know, um, use that simulation, um, I think is really helpful for nurses. I've heard that, that they felt very comfortable, very nervous and scared to do it. But then after often saying to me, oh, I was, I'm so glad that was so helpful. Like I honestly, Pat, have had very rarely have I had a nurse walk away saying, oh, that was a waste of my time. Like they often feel really great about being able to utilize the tool in practice. So I think that's all often very good for, for all of us. I mean, we wouldn't go stick a needle in somebody until we've done it on an orange, right? So <laughs> I think it's, you know, um, I think it's reasonable to, to practice it with one another. Again, I'm going to go back to the prognosis. I think that nurses feel somewhat uncomfortable in almost every session that I come in with nursing colleagues um, will say to me, I, I don't really feel comfortable with the prognosis. But I think if, you know, we have the interprofessional practice guide, um, I know that you participated in the development of, which has those other options of prognosis, right? And that's why we sort of threw away the clinician guide that was originally created because it was really geared for physicians. Whereas the interprofessional practice guide brings in the language for other professionals and not just physicians. So I think, you know, that I think is a really good tool for nurses to, to sort of like look through to see the other types of language. And I would say you do this all the time. It's just being being able to bring it all together and to add this as part of your skill set for communicating. Patients, it matters to them when they feel cared for. And they very rarely do I hear people complain about nursing. Maybe it's because I'm a nurse, so they don't want to complain about my colleagues. But, um, you know, most people say, oh, you know, I got such good care. They took such good care of me and, and so much good compliments around the physical care that we give. This emotional care is de definitely part of our scope of practice. We've often done it for years and years and years informally. And I don't think, think there's anything wrong in making this a formal pro um, process of our practice. So I would say, go for it. It's part of your scope and it's it's part of um, your ability as a nurse to do this. Thank you. What a wonderful note to end on. Uh, that's a very affirming statement about nursing practice. Sandy. Thanks so much for taking the time to wander into this conversation with me. I'm wondering if people wanted to contact you, get in touch with you, mm -hmm. uh, how might they do that? So I would say the easiest way is to go onto my website. So um, it is qualitylifeplanning.com. Um, yeah, I think in, I think you have to spell it out because when you Google search it, it doesn't just pop up because apparently there's lots of other places that have these three <laughs> keywords into it. So um, yeah, so qualitylifeplanning.com. Thanks for listening. You can reach me or information about this episode on our website, www.radicalnursetalk.com. Com. The producer-editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos-Foley, social media by Amy Strachan. If you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Join me next week for more Radical Nurse Talk. In the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives. <laughs>